0: This is episode 145 of the Relate Podcast on Owning Your Data with Brittany Kaiser. We are spending more and more time in the online world, looking through our screens and increasingly disconnected with those around us. But studies have proven that it's real-life meaningful relationships that bring us the most joy and happiness. It's all about human connection and conversing with people from a variety of backgrounds. Worlds change when eyes meet, so let's sit down and relate. I am your host, Patrick McAndrew, and welcome to yet another episode of the Relate Podcast. So happy to have you here. Hey, If you are a fan of the Relate Podcast, head to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. This always goes a long way in spreading the word and mission of this podcast to a wider audience. It will be greatly appreciated. So for today's episode, we are talking with the one and only Brittany Kaiser. Brittany Kaiser is a data rights activist and founder of the hashtag Own Your Data campaign. She is also the co-founder of the Digital Asset Trade Association, a nonprofit lobbying firm advancing legislative reform to protect the rights of individuals to control their own digital assets. Brittany is very well known in this space, in the data privacy space. You might recognize her from the documentary, The Great Hack, which she is prominently featured in. She is also the author of the book Targeted, which I highly recommend checking out. And she has been doing a wide variety of different great advocacy work in this space. And specifically in this episode, we talk about a wide variety of different things. We talk about the overall impact of technology, data rights, and advising tech companies to implement data rights into their organizations. We talk about preventative diplomacy. We talk about the Facebook and Cambridge Analytica scandal as well, which Brittany saw herself entangled in. We talk about data protection and privacy laws. We talk about the future of the data industry as well, what it means for us as citizens to own our data, and just a wide variety of different things that are super important in our society today where we really need to have a deep knowledge and understanding of the ways in which technology impacts our lives, impacts our well-being, and impacts the world at large. If you like this episode, feel free to share it with a friend who you think it might really resonate with. This is a powerful episode. Be sure to tune in and also take advantage of all the resources that Brittany mentions throughout the episode. So without further ado, let me please introduce today's guest of relate, Brittany Kaiser. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Relate Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest joining us. Her name is Brittany Kaiser. Brittany, thank you so much for joining us on the show today.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm really excited to have you here because, as I had mentioned to you before we started recording, I'm very inspired by your story, by the work that you're doing. We have a lot of listeners who tune in who are very interested on the impact that technology is having on society today. And for those people who are tuning in who may not be familiar with your work, you definitely have a lot of experience in, in this type of world. So I'll be excited to you know dive into a deeper conversation with you on the show today.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. This is definitely uh, at the top of a lot of people's minds. It's definitely at the top of even the agenda list for the new administration, for us to consider new laws in the space that protect people. So diving deep into these issues to make sure everyone really understands what we're talking about on the on the level of how technology impacts our lives is so important.
0: Yes. And, and I think that that's a big reason why I had started this podcast was to really start spreading awareness with regards to how technology is impacting us really on a daily basis because basically now or at least a large portion of the world population has access to the internet has access to a smartphone and while yes it may not be everybody it is still a sizable amount of people who are interacting daily and in creating these in a lot of ways digital versions of themselves so it's interesting to kind of dissect where this is going as we progress as a society so I guess just to start out, for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, I'm wondering if you could just share a little bit about your background and what brought you into this greater world of tech and data.
1: Absolutely. So, uh, where I stand today, uh, I define myself as a data rights activist. And what that really means is that I spend my time working across education and awareness, legislation and regulation as well as advising technology companies to make sure that our rights are protected. Some people think of our privacy as a human right, which has been it has been an international law for the past couple decades. Some people think of our data rights as property rights, you know, that it's value that we create that we should have more control over. And some people are just thinking about some of the wider implications of technology and why we don't have any transparency into what platforms are doing with our personal information, what that means for politics and our democracy, what that means for the safety of ourselves and our family, and especially what the implications are when nearly everyone has been leading a completely digital life for the past year which was completely unexpected and something we yes. didn't care for. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the way that I got to where I am today is by starting young, I suppose. When I was uh, a teenager, I got really involved in politics. And my first big job, I suppose, in politics was joining the first Obama campaign in 07, 08. And in early 2007, when I joined... Uh, I was on what was called the new media team. At the time, new media was a combination of data, uh, digital content production, and even social media, which up until that time had only been used for peer-to-peer communications, not external communications or campaigning. But we were the first people to, well, I suppose, invent social media strategy and all Uh, corporate advertising as well as political campaigning was based off of the strategies that we designed in 2007. So it began pretty rudimentarily, to be honest. Uh, We were uh, hand collecting uh, data into Excel sheets about individuals that were interacting with us online. So what did they care about? What was important to their families? what types of topics were making them engage more, uh, whether that meant they were donating or showing up to one of our events, or they were sharing some of our content with their friends. We were starting to build an understanding of what actually made people care about what our campaign and what uh, Senator Obama had to say. And the more that we collected that data and the more it affected our messaging, in terms of only talking to people about what they cared about, the much greater our impact was. And, you know, it was just so magical at the time to see that, uh, you know, you could call me naive, or you could call me eternally optimistic, which is what I prefer. (laughs) (laughs) I saw these uh, technologies as something that would have a net positive impact on the world. And so instead of joining the uh, Obama White House communications team, which is what a lot of people on my team at a headquarters or campaign headquarters decided to go do, I instead, I had been training as a human rights lawyer in college before I dropped out to go work on the Obama campaign and went off instead to start teaching human rights organizations, charities, and nonprofits how they could use the tools that we built on the Obama campaign.
0: Well, So yeah, to, to go back what you were saying, then you were really taking this knowledge and, and fueling it into a really worthy cause where I, I'm sure you saw this situation where you, you saw this massive impact in this political campaign that you're like, okay, this can be used for a wide variety of different good causes.
1: Absolutely. And uh, I saw that the more information you know about people the more you exercise these tools the greater your impact was i mean that was how the obama campaign came to such prominence so quickly even though a lot of people didn't know who senator obama was when he started campaigning now there were tons of important organizations doing serious social impact work around the world where not enough people were hearing their message not enough people were getting involved and engaged and donating or turning out or sharing that message with others. And so it seemed very straightforward to me that these organizations that didn't have you know, the, the money capacity and connections of a presidential election campaign should still have access to these tools and understand how to use them so that they would have a real opportunity to get their message heard and therefore be able to do their work properly
0: yeah it's it's really amazing even like just thinking back then and and you really have this you know you were you were there, you have this really uh prominent account of of the possibilities that were were present in social media and the the potential good that it could do as well and I think at that time, everyone really did have this optimistic view of technology and while I think some of that does still exist to a certain extent. I think that there has definitely been a shift that people are now starting to see, oh, okay, well, maybe there are actually some negatives that come with with this these platforms. Maybe it's not this utopia that we once saw it as.
1: Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. As I said, some people could uh, see me as naive for thinking that these tools would have a net positive effect on the world, but that's really how I felt at the time, because everything I was doing with it was positive. Um, so fast forward a couple of years later, and I'm about to write my PhD in international law. I'm still studying as a human rights lawyer, and my main topic was on something called preventive diplomacy. What that means is I was researching into how you prevent crisis before it happens, how you can prevent violent crime or war before it happens. And a lot of the research that was out there said this has to do with diplomatic strategy, you know, what important people say in a room and how they do it. But what what my research was showing was this was all about data. Uh, what data did decision makers have access to? Who was analyzing that data? How real time was that happening? How good were the data scientists that were analyzing that data? And did that get in the hands of decision makers fast enough for them to prevent any of these things from happening. Because no one at my law school could teach me about advanced predictive algorithms, (laughs) I uh, had a friend introduce me to the CEO of Cambridge Analytica. (laughs) And I thought, well, you know, at least I'll interview him for my PhD. But at the time, I was also kind of looking for a part-time job to support my expenses for my doctoral research. I was flying To Geneva and Brussels all the time to be involved in human rights conferences. And I spoke to people at Cambridge Analytica about what they were doing. And in the beginning, it really seemed like it was a perfect fit for me. Uh, One of the main projects they were working on when I was first introduced to the company was teaching all NATO uh, and allied militaries how to identify young people who were vulnerable to being uh, radicalized and recruited into ISIS online and sneaking themselves into Syria. Wow. Which, you know, through behavioral data and who they're talking to and types of, you know, uh, recruitment accounts that could have made contact with them, you can tell these things. And so the kind of defense experts at Cambridge had been helping militaries identify these individuals and then run counter propaganda communications to keep them at home safe with their families. I thought, well, you know, this is something that I wanna learn how to do. Uh, This is amazing work. And this takes, you know, political campaigning for uh, a well-intentioned politician much further. This is, you know, much bigger impact than that. And uh, I wanna be a part of it. Probably not, not how most people think I got to Cambridge Analytica. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, I'm really glad that that you you laid that out because it really sets the scene on the this organization, this company that you know, like in in a lot of ways, they were doing some really positive work, and it's really interesting to to dissect what exactly went on there. I know when the whole scandal with Cambridge Analytica came out. I, I, you know, saw obviously the name on the news all the time. I re- read about it, and even though like I kept hearing Cambridge Analytica, Cambridge Analytica, I wasn't a hundred percent sure. Like, okay, what what are the details of like what's going on here? I was, I was still trying to like wrap my head around this world, how how data privacy worked and and everything. And then it was really when when I had the opportunity to see the documentary, The Great Hack, which of course you're very uh, prominently featured in that I really began for myself to have a deeper understanding what was really going on. And so f- for our listeners, I know you pr- you probably talk about this like all the time. So, you know, you, I, <laughs> you feel free to to share as much or as little as you would like. But for our listeners who, who might be kind of where I was in that point where, okay, they've heard this of Cambridge Analytica, they know it's some sort of, scandal with with Facebook and and data privacy has something to do with that. I'm wondering if maybe you could just share for our listeners a a little bit more details as to what this situation was and why was it so serious?
1: Yeah, of course. And and so it it actually goes back to a very simple and small tool that Facebook developed uh, around 2010. Uh, It was called the Friends API. And what the Friends API did was open up uh, a way for developers to join Facebook's new developer program so that you could build an application on the Facebook platform. You might remember for many years there were pop-ups that you would get where you could play your friends on Candy Crush or FarmVille. Or you uh, could yes. figure out, you could be asked, you know, what Disney princess are you or what city should you really be living in <laughs> and take a quiz?
0: Yeah, that's like classic Facebook. I remember that. It's going <laughs> way back.
1: Exactly. And so uh, you'll also realize that obviously that doesn't exist on Facebook anymore. And that's for a very specific reason now the Facebook Developers program ended up having over 40,000 companies that joined. And that meant every company had access to the Friends API, which allowed you to collect data off of Facebook for everybody that consented to uh, take your quiz or use your app. So for instance, um, if you consented to play Candy Crush or you consented to take a quiz about your favorite Disney princess, then your data you were consenting for your data to be taken by that developer or by you know the the company or group who had developed that app but unfortunately the way that facebook built the friends api was that the developer could then have access to also all of the data that belonged to everybody in your friends network your parents your grandmother your kids whoever it happened to be everyone that you were connected to on Facebook then had their data taken.
0: Wow.
1: Right. (laughs) So it literally comes down to that. So uh, under the law, you cannot consent on behalf of another able-bodied adult to have their data taken. Every individual has to consent for their own data. And that's not what the tool allowed these companies to do. So for instance, Cambridge Analytica was able to have... Uh, a couple hundred thousand people take this quiz, but they got the data of over 30 million people. There were, you know, bigger applications than the Cambridge Analytica's This Is Your Digital Life quiz. And therefore, uh, big platforms like Candy Crush and Farmville definitely got the data of everybody on Facebook because they had millions or tens of millions of people using their app and therefore it would have touched everybody on Facebook who at least had, you know, one friend, right?
0: Wow. And
1: that and that was the core issue in the beginning which was that anyone who collected Facebook data, Cambridge Analytica being one out of over 40,000 companies, had illegally taken most of the data that they had. And a lot of these companies turned around and started selling this data on the open market. So anyone that had a Facebook account before April 2015, when they closed the program, their data is probably on millions of databases all around the world today, and you're not going to be able to get it back. Uh, And that's just unfortunately the reality. But that's not really where the scandal ends. The reason why Cambridge Analytica and Facebook had such a bigger public profile was because instead of... A lot of the other companies in the developers program that went to go use this data for user experience, or maybe sold this data on to other data companies just for advertising purposes, Cambridge Analytica ended up having clients like the Brexit campaign and Donald Trump for president, and the Defeat Crooked Hillary campaign, which was a a super PAC called Make America Number One in support of Donald Trump. And what some of these clients did with all of the data that existed at Cambridge Analytica, Facebook data included, was to run disinformation campaigns, to use racism and sexism in their messaging and weaponize it, to run voter suppression tactics. And that's, that's where this really blew up, uh, because it wasn't just that people's data was illegally taken off of Facebook. I mean, that was the main problem for Facebook. But then once that data was taken off and used in modeling and basically uploaded back into Facebook to target people, the messaging that was being used was tantamount to, as some people would say, the undermining of democracy or democratic principles. So it got a lot worse than just a data rights violation, unfortunately.
0: Well, yeah, it's it's very crazy, I, and I appreciate you too, like uh, explaining this so clearly because I think it really hits home just how serious of an issue this was, and and in a lot of ways continues to be to a, a certain extent. In that, I, I think that sometimes when people are online and they're scrolling, well, there is more, uh, I guess, awareness around. Okay there are certain things being tailored specifically for you and there is this this misinformation going on out there while there is more awareness of that i think sometimes it's very easy to for for us to forget as as just normal average people scrolling through that okay maybe everything we're seeing is not necessarily the truth
1: yeah and that's the unfortunate state of affairs that we have right now where more people get their information off of social media than real news platforms. And therefore, most of the information that people are consuming has not been fact checked. (laughs) It has uh, not been produced by people that write according to a code of ethics. It's not being written by people who have journalistic standards or have uh, laws that they have to abide by. And unfortunately, that's you know, the majority of the content that is getting in front of eyes uh, all over the world every single day. So it's definitely um, an epidemic or a crisis of real information. And it's difficult for a lot of people to decipher what they should believe or what they should not these days.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I know that obviously, you played a a really large part in Spreading the word about these things that were going on at Cambridge Analytica, what was that experience like? I understand that in a lot of ways it was probably very terrifying, scary at moments. How how did you go about that, and also how were you able to overcome that as well?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. So. Um, I had left Cambridge Analytica a couple months before I became a whistleblower. It had become clear to me that the tactics that had been used on the Trump campaign and for multiple other clients around the world had been something that I no longer wanted to be a part of. I hadn't wanted to be a part of it in the first place. And the more that I was given documentation that showed what my colleagues had done in different countries or in different campaigns the more I realized something needed to be done about it. I left the company not immediately thinking I would become a whistleblower, but definitely thinking I wanted to go into uh, data regulation. I obviously was trained as a human rights lawyer, and protecting people's rights uh, is something that I specialize in. <laughs> and I thought that this, not just data, but the technology industry in general was suffering from a lack of legislation that helped protect people from bad actors. So I, I left and started a, you know, a technology lobbying nonprofit where I started engaging with legislators and doing legislative drafting around some of these topics. And two months later, I see this big headline that Cambridge Analytica uh, never deleted Facebook data that it was supposed to have deleted when this friends API closed. Oh wow. Right. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Um, And uh, when I saw that in the news, I thought, wait, what? Because I was copied into my company's communications with Facebook at the time where our chief data officer had said that he, yes, in fact, had deleted the Facebook data. And so I started to look through, My work computer, which I still had with me, I was planning on the next time I went to New York, turning it back in at headquarters. And I started looking through what was on that computer, and I realized that Facebook data continued to be referenced in materials, even after uh, my chief data officer said it had been deleted. And I found quite a few other things that I thought were probably something that should be in the public domain and not kept private due to the amount of concern that people had over the issue. So I went to the Guardian and started going through documents on my computer and said, hey, you know, how do we how do we put this in a way where people are actually going to listen or going to care? Because I'm taking a massive risk right now um, by giving these things to you. But I I really think that people need to understand what happened. And that's when, uh, I suppose that was the first domino. Uh, At the time, I thought I had enough information to write what I called a strongly worded (laughs) 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 op-ed. Because I I thought that that was, um, you know, the most impactful thing I could do at the time. Little did I know that Uh, The Guardian would print five articles and a video that would go viral globally.
0: Wow.
1: um, By hundreds of millions of people and that this would become the biggest headline around the world for the foreseeable future. Uh, (laughs) So it really um, took me by surprise. But once it escalated to that level and the entire world was trying to figure out what had just happened in the elections, what had been done with people's data, how many countries around the world had had these technologies applied in their elections, how many countries had their citizens with Facebook accounts where their data had been compromised. I mean, it turned, obviously, into the, the biggest uh, news story in years, um, I would, at least for the technology industry. It was the biggest thing that had happened since Edward Snowden's revelations. Right. In 2013. So uh, all of a sudden, I'm testifying in British Parliament. I'm testifying in Congress to the Mueller investigation. I'm on headline news every single day. I have a documentary team (laughs) following me. And it just, you know, kept on going to that magnitude. Keynoting at technology and legal and government conferences. And it was just nonstop. And, you know, it really still has been nonstop many years later. Every single day, I spend at least half my day doing interviews like this or doing press or uh, teaching and guest lecturing or or testifying in Congress remotely as to why a particular new law around um, regulating the technology industry needs to be passed. (laughs) (laughs) But it's it's definitely been a massive wave of momentum to finally take seriously the fact that we as individuals you know are are the producers of what is now the world's uh, most valuable asset class uh, made up of our personal information it's a multi trillion dollar industry that is worth more than oil and gas and somehow in most countries around the world the individuals that are producing that asset class have absolutely no rights to it and that's you know where we've gotten to today
0: yeah, <laughs> well, I, with with all of that said, I just really appreciate, really you you really put yourself out there and and were very courageous in bringing this, uh, you know this information to to the public and and really to the the forefronts of of everybody's mind. Even even if when you did you know submit to the the Guardian, you didn't expect it to to be so i guess so worldly in in it's an announcement but you you really have been this this pioneer in in making change when it comes to data privacy when it comes to the ways in which we interact with technology and so you know i i, I can't thank you enough for really being that that advocate for many of us who are in this space really trying to figure out ways and solutions in order to not necessarily lose our, our data to whether it be big tech or, or other companies. And that really transitions nicely to to the work that you're doing right now. I know that you, you have found this foundation called Own Your Data. And I would love for you to talk about exactly what it is that you do with this foundation. I, I love your mission about living a, a safe, protected and informed digital life. What does this exactly mean for your average citizen? What what does it mean to to live a to live a safe, protected, and informed digital life?
1: I think that's a great question and something that a lot of people have been struggling with this year, especially if people have never thought about it before. Now they yes. realize they're on twenty-four seven and you know, what what um what is your real knowledge base to protect yourself? Um, most people, that knowledge base is slim to none. And I, I came to realize that while I had started kind of my my global own your data campaign, which was a campaign to raise awareness of you know what data is, how valuable it is, and how even though we have the human right to privacy, our privacy is not really protected in law. And therefore companies do not have an obligation to protect us against bad actors, whether they are bad actors or bad actors are using their tools or platforms that in general, you you know, as soon as you get on a technology platform, it's the wild west. It's not the same expectations you would have if you're walking down the street. Right. And, And so leading a safe, protected digital life really should mean that you have, first of all, transparency. So, If you are going to use a platform, you know what information is going to be collected about you while you are using it. You know how that information is going to be sold on or shared with other partners. You know how that data is then going to be used. Right now, in general, we don't have access to any of that. So that's just the basic transparency aspect. Now, in order to lead a really safe, informed, and protected digital life, you don't just need transparency, you need, you need consent, you need permission structures. So if you were to log into a platform and they told you the data that they're going to collect about you and who they're going to sell it to, you should be able to opt out of that and say, you know, you can only collect minimal data for my user experience, or you can only sell my data to these companies, but not to these companies. And Besides the consent and permission, in the end, that's what type of value is being uh, created from your data, from your personal information, and why don't you have any access to it? So if your data is being sold for however much, why isn't a portion of that value given back to you? Why can people just sell your personal information without you reaping any benefit or reward from it whatsoever. So when we're talking about having transparency, having consent and permission, which is really control, and then having access to that value or the monetization of your data, those are some of the most important concepts in really having you know a, a safe and protected and successful digital life. And we're, we're really at the beginning of that process, you know, with with uh, legislation and regulation in many countries around the world, uh, countries are starting to write their first ever data protection and privacy laws. So we're starting to get some rights to at least ask companies or governments what data they hold on us. Ask for them no longer to use our data to market or sell things to us or to sell our data on to others, and for the right to delete. So if we want them to get rid of all information that they hold on us, then in many countries we do now have that right. Not yet in the United States unless you are in the state of California. But we're starting to get there. All over Europe and many countries around the world are starting to enshrine these rights. Um, It's definitely trending in a positive direction. Uh, which is great. But that's just legislation and regulation. That's not how technology companies are changing their own personal policies. And it's definitely not education and awareness down to an individual level. So in order to know how to exercise your rights, you have to really understand how to use either privacy by design tools or how to opt out of certain things with tools that are not meant to protect your privacy. And that's a pretty difficult thing to do these days. Uh, And so this is why I started the Own Your Data Foundation, because I believe that everyone should have, you know, democratic access to information on how to protect themselves online. It's not something we're taught in schools yet, (laughs) but... (laughs) Uh, it's something that we should have been taught in schools. We were taught, here's a computer, here's a keyboard. This is how you type. This is how you send an email. But we were never told that every single thing that we type is being recorded and collected and held and then bought and sold and traded around the world without our permission. If we would have been told that, <laughs> we, we definitely would have acted a little bit differently throughout our lives. But it was not information we were given, unfortunately, when we learned how to use technology. So the, the Own Your Data Foundation not only provides resources and tools for people to understand more about the landscape, but is partnered with um, the world's premier digital literacy curriculum. It's called DQ, which just like IQ or EQ, it's a digital intelligence quotient. And it's been developed by the DQ Institute, who are our partners, and they worked with over the past 10 years, all of the world's top technology think tanks and universities and government departments of technology and innovation and et cetera and so forth. And they came up with an indicator set that that creates your DQ score. So that measures everything that you understand about your digital life, everything that you need to know, and then you get your DQ score and you can improve upon it. There's eight different key parts of the curriculum, everything from understanding your digital footprint and the data you produce to having digital empathy so that you can use emotional intelligence online and on social media Uh, which helps counter cyberbullying and and things of that nature. It helps you understand how to not be addicted to devices, teaches you media literacy so you can spot fake news and disinformation and hacking and phishing attempts. And, you know, throughout this curriculum, it provides you all of the tools you really need to not just protect yourself but to feel confident that you can be successful online and that you will not fall uh victim to unfortunately a lot of the negative parts of you know engaging in a digital life.
0: Wow. That's that's amazing. I I love how there are just a wide variety of these different types of resources available because I was gonna ask that I think that people as as we've discussed are just beginning to get some sort of idea and concept as to okay what does it mean with regards to my data being online how you know how are people going about tracking it and i i feel like it's difficult for a lot of people to grasp because data it's not like this tangible thing it's not like a phone, which is like a physical object, or it's not like a person that we could see and, and talk with live or even, you know, online, especially nowadays. Are are there, I guess, are, are the development of these type of resources still in the works? And I guess my, my question along these lines is that when will people get the opportunity to be able to I guess, track their online activity to really go into this direction of owning their data, perhaps licensing it out or or, or selling their data to a variety of different people. Are, are we still in the process of figuring out how all of that is going to work or have there already been A variety of different solutions that have been created for those kind of issues.
1: Yeah, so that's particularly why I do spend a lot of my time advising technology companies. I sit on board of directors or advisory boards or data ethics boards of quite a few companies who are solving different parts of this problem. And I'm going to talk about it at a high level first, which is that what it really means to own your data is that you would have the rights As I said, to transparency, to consent on ways your data is used, and then, of course, to monetize that data for yourself. Now, I'm not trying to destroy anybody's business models. I'm just saying that it's very possible to reward people for sharing their data, where the companies that are collecting that data still earn plenty of money, but a small dividend of that goes to the producers of that data, and therefore, motivates us as individuals to continue to share. This is how loyalty programs work. If you decide to share the information about what you buy when you grocery shop, then you get a you know gift certificate or a coupon to use uh, the next time around. If you decide to create an account with an airline and share the data of everywhere you're flying and when and where and why, then you can start collecting points which go towards free flights. So this is already a a pretty normal way for people to do business. But unfortunately, over the past couple decades, a lot of the technology industry has developed in what I call a kleptocratic way, which is take as much value away from users as possible. Um, And that is why big data behemoths like Facebook and Google are some of the world's most valuable companies because they have taken everyone's data without our knowledge, without our explicit consent... And now all of that data is owned by those companies, even though it was produced by us, the individual users and and consumers. And so to own your data really means to have rights to your personal information, like you would have rights to your house or your car or anything else that you own. So if someone wanted to use your house like they do on Airbnb, and this is my favorite business model because it really shows what the future of data ownership could be like, If someone wants to use your house, your property, just like your data could be your property, they tell you who they are, what they want to use your property for, how long they're going to be there, and you agree on a price before you hand away the keys. It's really simple. It's very lucrative. It works for everybody. Very transparent, very consensual, right? And that's really where uh, the data industry, I believe, is going, where we'll be able to figure out who wants access to our data, what they're going to use it for, who they're going to share it with and for how long. And we can agree to that or we can change the terms that better suit us. And when it's all agreed upon, then we will get paid for any data that we share. So a lot of the companies that I'm currently advising have either built digital identity solutions where you can protect your most private of data. So, you know, your name, address, social security number, birthday, But this digital identity will allow you on the internet to claim the rest of the data that is produced about you without sharing your name, for instance. So I'd be able to log into a platform um, like Facebook, for instance, and they would know that that's me, but I don't actually need to share that my name is Brittany Kaiser. I can instead share that I'm a part of an environmental group and that You know, I like to read political news and, you know, things of that nature, right? Uh, But it doesn't need to be that it's from me. So I can protect the information I don't wanna share and I can share everything else that I'm happy to monetize for advertisers or for any other data partners that they have. And so there's digital identity solutions for you to prove who you are online without revealing your personal information. And then there's data wallets, so applications that allow you to track all of the data that you're producing out of your devices, where it's going and where the markets are for it, and choose where you want to sell it or not. And you can sell it consensually, transparently, and anonymously so that you could never come to any harm from that data being sold. And you then get what some legislators call a data dividend. So you get a, um, a portion of that value. And that accrues in your data wallet in this application. And, you know, some of these companies are putting together massive online data markets, like some of the ones that already exist, but they're controlled by the user instead of controlled by big companies. And most of the numbers that I have seen, all the research that I've seen done shows that it would be very easy, really actually very easy, and a lot of people love to challenge me on this, but uh, it's pretty easy to back it up, that you as an individual could earn enough money from your data every day that you could at least buy your groceries with it. Wow. What that means is that the value that is being taken away from people every day right now, once that value is returned, To individuals or we start to earn from the data we produce from here forward that data ownership has the ability to cure extreme poverty because everyone will at least be able to eat based off of the value that they produce with just their personal data every day that's the tangible reality that we have in front of us and it's why i fight for this with (laughs) every waking moment
0: that is amazing really when you put it in that perspective it, it really sheds light on to how critical data ownership is, how important it is to have control over our own data. And yeah, to go with what you said, like just the the potential good that could come from that when it, it really is this matter of people being responsible for their own online lives and having a, an understanding of how all that works as well. I I'm very excited just to see where we progress as a society when it comes to this. And you know, I, I know that in addition to all this great work that you've done, you've also have written a book called Targeted, which covers a lot of what we have been talking about in this conversation. So I would love for our listeners who. Are, are listening to you right now, and, and they're like, oh my gosh, I, I want to learn more about what's going on. Can you can you just talk briefly about what your book Targeted is about?
1: Of course, yes. So Targeted is uh, you know <laughs> a passion project, really a memoir, but also a call to action. It goes over who I was before I joined Cambridge Analytica and what happened throughout my almost four years there, as well as some of the work that I've done as a whistleblower since. It takes you through exactly how the industry works, um, how data is bought and sold and traded across the world, how people use it, especially in political communications and advertising. Uh, It explains to you what all of the legal quandaries are around that and how I dealt with that quandary myself as an individual trying to figure out what the ethics of this industry should be, an industry that I had helped start (laughs) and an industry (laughs) that I felt very responsible for what the outcome would be of it. And so since uh, really leaving Cambridge Analytica, I describe in that book all of the kind of legislative and regulatory work and some of the um, kind of data ethics and technology ethics development of conversation. And, you know, where, where I really am today, Uh, that book came out October, 2019. And It actually predicted a lot of things that happened throughout 2020, especially with um, Trump administration's use of social media. And so I'm sorry to say that I predicted some of the uh, bad things that happened, but I could see it coming. And now that everything has come to a head and we now have a lot of people who have technology legislation at the top of the agenda um, for the new Congress, I think we have a huge opportunity right now to really make sure that some of the vulnerabilities that have existed in the technology industry don't continue to be a threat to our personal lives or obviously to our democracy either. So for those of you that haven't had the opportunity to read Targeted, um, it's it's called Targeted, the Cambridge Analytica whistleblower's inside story of how big data, Trump, and Facebook broke democracy. And how it can happen again.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. It's, uh, oh.
1: <laughs> it's a mouthful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, but a really important mouthful. To, it's so important. So uh, Brittany, I cannot thank you enough again for joining us on the Relate podcast today, not only for taking the time, but as I mentioned before, this work that you're doing, it's it's so important. and And you really are one of the pioneers who are really making sure that this work Sees itself through in the long run that it really becomes an important topic of conversation in the political sphere in the social sphere and just in the world in general. so thank you so much for all that you do
1: absolutely no, thank you for caring and and giving a platform to this conversation uh The more people that hear this, the better so um for for anyone out there that wants to learn more about this, obviously you know reading. Reading my book is a great way to find that out. Uh, watching my documentary, The Great Hack on Netflix um, is definitely a very deep yes. experience. Yes, highly,
0: highly recommend that for sure.
1: <laughs> and um, on my Own Your Data Foundation's website, which is ownyourdata.foundation, we have tons of resources that will help you learn more or dig into specific topics that you're more interested in. And uh, on social media, I am either at Own Your Data or at Own Your Data Now, uh, Brittany Kaiser on, uh, on every platform you can imagine. Yes, I'm still on social media, <laughs> even though I testify <laughs> against these companies in Congress. But, you know, <laughs> as I said, the more people that hear this message, the better. And that's why I've decided to stay on.
0: Yes. Well, great. For our listeners out there, I'll make sure to include the links to all those various resources in our show notes. Highly recommend checking them out. I I think that there is just so much rich material in, in these various resources that you've provided, Brittany. And before heading out, I'm just wondering if you have any parting words for our listeners in which they can... I guess implement into their lives. Would it just be a matter of going to the Own Your Data website, or is there something more in addition to that?
1: Well, you know, there there's a couple things that you can do every day that will definitely put you in more control over your digital life. I would say start thinking about using privacy by design technology, and by that I mean you could use Signal Messenger instead of WhatsApp you could use DuckDuckGo or Brave Browser instead of Google Chrome. Um, There there are simple things like that uh, that really will change the landscape of how much data you're putting out there and how much of your privacy you're able to protect. I would also say we have a huge opportunity over the next couple months especially to make sure that data protection and privacy law stays at the top of the agenda for the new administration for those of you that are in the US. And so if you've never done this before, or especially if you have, call your legislator and tell them that you care about your privacy, you care about data protection, and you want them to do something about it. It's really easy. You can look up who represents you, and you can either send them an email or you can leave a voicemail. Trust me, they're not going to pick up if you call them. <laughs> yeah. So it's a pretty quick thing to do. And you can just tell them that these are issues that you care about and you hope that they'll take action on your behalf. The more they hear that, the more they are legally bound to actually take action on those subjects. So it's much more helpful than you could ever imagine.
0: Great. Well, Brittany, thank you so much again for joining us on the show.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Relate. You can let me know your thoughts on this episode by going to Apple Podcasts and leaving me a review. Or if you have the Anchor app, feel free to call in and leave a voicemail. I would love to hear from you. You can support this podcast by clicking the link in the show notes. Thank you so much again for tuning in, and I'll catch you all in the next episode.